The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. With his guilty plea yesterday, we're learning more about serial killer Bruce MacArthur. Yesterday, the self-employed landscaper pleaded guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder. And with those guilty pleas, the agreed statement of facts, which provided some insight into the murders. Boy, did they ever. Uh, Ju Ling Lee is a sociology professor at the University of Toronto. He teaches a course on serial killers. Who wouldn't want to take that course? He joins us today uh, again and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, let's start here before we dive or delve back into the mind of a serial killer. Were you surprised in this particular case uh, that a guilty plea was entered? No, not really. I think that given the amount of evidence that police have gathered over the years and the stuff that they've shared with the media and the public, um, I, I, I didn't see this playing out any other way, to be honest. Uh, this is a case that seemed ironclad. Mm. There was just a mountain of evidence pointing to Mr. MacArthur's guilt. And, uh, you know, I think it, it I, I was suspecting that this is how it would go. And, and does that help the accused in getting a lighter sentence? I can't imagine a lighter sentence in this case, but. Um, I don't know the particulars of this plea deal, but oftentimes courts will make small concessions to a person who will forego a trial and 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 you know confess to guilt um that will often uh, bear favorably upon them now in a case with a serial killer uh I, I find it hard to imagine that somebody like bruce MacArthur would ever actually be released from prison given the uh, you know the nature of his crimes but you know if, if a person does cop a plea deal uh, they, they often do end up getting a lighter sentence, but that doesn't apply to serial killers usually. Ju Young, the, uh, the agreed statement of facts, when you read through that yesterday, and as we've all been reading through it, what did it tell you about uh, MacArthur himself? Well, one of the things that I found really interesting was that in a number of the different descriptions about the crime scenes, the police uh, were, were mentioning that there may have been... Uh, what they were calling staging. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I'm not sure if what they meant was actually posing. So there's two terms that often get confused in the in the criminological literature. Staging is the um, purposeful alteration of a crime scene. It's, for example, uh, it, it's trying to make a, a a death look like a suicide or an accident when in fact it's a homicide. So it's done with the intent of throwing police off your trail. Uh, posing, however, is when a perpetrator uh, positions a body into a pose, uh, oftentimes in a sexually degrading manner. Uh, and, and in large part, it's it's a form of gratification. It's another way of controlling and dominating the person even after they've died. So a number of the different accounts suggest that Mr. MacArthur was doing uh, posing, but they used the word staging. So mm. I was unclear about which they were referring to. You know, that's interesting because when you forgo a trial, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is that you don't put the family through um, the details of the crime. And so that should be a relief to the family. But when you have a statement of facts, and like you just mentioned, that there was either posing or staging, and it was, you know, that's a humiliating thing, that sort of puts it back into the family having to sit through those details. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you're, you're right on that, that front. I think that the, the difference in a trial is that oftentimes the, uh, you know, the prosecutors will get into considerably more detail. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, the statement of facts was pretty succinct. It was a few pages, two and a half pages. Um, but, you know, during a trial that gets drawn out, you hear testimony that these descriptions can go on for, you know, several minutes mm. and, and fill up pages and pages of transcripts. Mm. Ju Young, when we talk about uh, posing, I was reading the Toronto Star article uh, this morning that uh, you were quoted in, and some other experts um, in uh, in serial killers were were interviewed, and it talked about. Uh, precursors to post-mortem posing, that there's 20 known precursors to post-mortem posing. Why, why was that important to be in there? I, I'm trying to figure out, Is so is that leading up to this, little things leading up to someone who does this? What does that show? Yeah. What is What is the meaning of that? Right. I actually haven't read that article oh. yet, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think... Typically, they include those kinds of details because they, they're, people are trying to come up with a general profile of the type of person okay. who might engage in that kind of practice. And uh, usually, just in a general sense, I don't know what 20 indicators they, they listed, but one of the main ones, um, at least from the annals of serial killer history is that the serial killer tends to be motivated by sexual sadism and Mm -hmm. so there's um, often you know posing is something that people who are engaged in that kind of fantasy role play end up doing dennis Rader, who is known as the wichita strangler or the btk killer um, was also somebody who was very heavily into S&M, who also engaged in posing his victims and took took photographs of them, in fact. Wow. Uh, You know, not specific to this case with Bruce MacArthur, but in general, I'm curious to know, do serial killers tend to get better at what they're doing as they take more victims? Yes. So there, there tends to be sort of what we call a career in the sociological sense, meaning that there's a beginning, middle, and end. Um, you know, serial killers definitely get better over time. Uh, they, they learn to perfect their techniques. They, 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 learn, they get better at um, stalking victims, at covering their tracks. But the, the interesting thing is that a lot of serial killers often uh, get more brazen as well mm-hmm. towards the end of their careers, whatever timeline that may be. So after a series of uh, kills, if a serial killer has not been caught by police, they may feel comfortable enough to start making mistakes that um, could lead to their arrest. And that's something that we see quite often with serial killers who end up getting caught. There's been a lot of focus on MacArthur's age um, and um, in, in the documents that I've been reading and when we talked last time, it was mentioned that most serial killers start off offending in their 20s um, and most don't offend that we know of past 55. And from what we know right now, MacArthur started at 58 and was a serial sexual killer as well. So when you look at that, um, that's rare, isn't it? It's very rare, given what we know about serial killers. Uh, the average, uh, I guess, starting point or, or, or timeline for serial killers is often in their 20s. Um, and, you know, typically, the you know, serial killers who get caught, at least, are not at it for that long. 
Um, now, the interesting thing is that all of our knowledge about serial killers is based on people who get arrested and convicted. <laughs> yeah. So by definition, all of our knowledge is based on people who have failed in their careers as serial killers. These are people who didn't get away with it in the long run. So, you know, that, that leads me to think and others to think that there are many other serial killers out there who, who may be offending later into the life course, who are in their 60s or twilight years, um, and we just don't know about them because they've, you know, for, for whatever reason, have not been caught. Hmm. And, and how did that, his age and his, you know, betrayed grandfather and, you know, I'm, I think it was a Santa Claus at a, at a mall. How did that help, do you think, him go undetected? Well, that's definitely a part of the serial killer's toolkit. They have a public persona, a mask that they wear when they go out in public. Uh, they often occupy the kinds of roles and positions that people admire or they're trusted. Um, and uh, this is in large part a ruse. It's mm -hmm. part of this double life that they lead. Um, and in some ways, it's also part of the excitement that they get, that they're able to hide and conceal this very dark part of themselves from the rest of the world who just sees them as a Santa Claus or as a upstanding neighbor. Hmm. That's interesting. So what other common uh, denominators are there for a uh, serial killer keeping mementos, taking pictures, uh, otherwise leading to normal life? Are there other things that are consistent among many serial killers? Um, well, that's a great question. And, you know, I think the big one, at least amongst uh, a, a certain class of serial killers is a lack of empathy, mm -hmm. is the sense that, um, you know, at least amongst serial killers who have psychopathy, they, they lack empathy for other people. Uh, they have a very narcissistic orientation to the world where they believe that, you know, they're the center of the world and that their needs and desires come before the needs of others. Um, you know, serial killers are overwhelmingly men. Uh, that's another kind of general uh, thing in common. There are female serial killers, but men outnumber them qu by quite a bit. Um, so, there, you know, there's, there's tremendous variation, though. That's something that we often don't hear about. Like, we often hear about the sexually sadistic serial killers, but there are other serial killers who um, might be classified as comfort-slash-gain serial killers. These are people who kill because... They know that the person they're killing has money or something that they want, like a car or like some resource. Um, these people are also driven by the excitement of killing, but their the motivations are a little bit different than the sexual sadist. Hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier, and I had asked about, do serial killers get better as they go along? In this particular case, uh, Bruce MacArthur hid body parts in areas where he worked. Do you, what's your opinion, was that to keep those, that evidence close to him, or was it uh, he was getting better at hiding because he had gotten away with that before? Why do you think he was, was hiding them? Was it thrill thing? Yeah, well, why would he do it, why would he hide those body parts near where he was working or had worked? Um, that's a tough one. I think that there could be a number of theories for this. I mean, one of them is certainly that, you know, uh, Ted Bundy, in fact, was one of the first serial killers to help the FBI come up with the idea that serial killers often like to revisit uh, places where they dispose bodies. And that was a, a key clue that helped the FBI when they were searching for Gary Ridgway, who was nicknamed the Green River Killer up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so there is one kind of idea or theory out there that perhaps he, he hid them in planters where he's he's been, 
uh, as a way to revisit them. Um, it, it could also just be a practical thing. Um, you know, disposing of bodies in a big city like Toronto is not a very easy thing to do. It's a very dense city. And, you know, having access to these properties where he could uh, quickly dispose of bodies and place them into things that perhaps people wouldn't look to find them uh, might have just been the easiest way for him to do it. You had mentioned Ted Bundy just there, and we had a, a question come in on the text line uh, for you. And uh, one of our listeners wondering what your thoughts are on the Ted Bundy movie that's coming out. Yeah, I mean, I have very mixed feelings about the, the kind of serial killer movies and TV shows. I mean, I, I, I just watched the, the documentary on Netflix about Ted Bundy. Um, and there's a part of me that feels like it's important information for us to have as the public to, to be aware of this kind of criminal. But then on the other hand, you know, there is another part of me that thinks that we spend too much time uh, talking and thinking about serial killers and not enough time talking about victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, and, and, and that definitely feeds into the motivations. You know, serial killers, just like mass shooters, they know that they can become notorious and infamous if they uh, commit these crimes. So I, I have a very torn feeling. I mean, I probably will go see it just because of the field I'm in, but I do have those reservations because I do feel like we, we spend a lot of time talking about them and not victims. Yeah, before we let you go, we're actually a little over time. Appreciate your patience with us. Uh, one sure. last question about the investigation, because there's been complaints that Toronto Police did not take seriously or did not uh, vigorously uh, follow up on leads uh, from the gay community that... Uh, they were given that people were missing. Do you have any thoughts on the Toronto investigation? Um, well, I, I guess I should say from the outset that, you know, serial killer investigations are very difficult. They often involve police from different police departments. You know, they often happen over a very long period of time. Um, but the, the, the research that other scholars have done in this field has pointed to a... Uh, I guess you could call it a bias, that if a missing white woman from an affluent neighborhood goes missing, um, there's often this uh, immediate response from police. There's often a a larger interest by the media and by community members to go and find the person. Um, The same cannot be said, though, about people who go missing in other communities. All we have to do is look in British Columbia at the missing and murdered Indigenous women to see the disparities and the kinds of public resources and attention spent on mm-hmm. locating people. So I don't know if it's an intentional thing, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to ever insinuate that police officers individually are biased in that respect, but I do think that there's an implicit bias in uh, the kinds of attention we pay when certain people go missing versus others. Mr. Lee, one more question before we let you go. Um, Given um, the pleas, the eight uh, guilty pleas he um, uh, admitted to uh, yesterday, and we had talked, and we know that uh, for years prior he was a door-to-door salesman covering, I think, the better part of Ontario. Would you be surprised to hear of more cold cases or other cases linked to Bruce MacArthur? No, absolutely not. I think that given the timeline of his ascending, of his killing, it's very possible that there are other homicides out there that we don't know about. Interesting. Good stuff. Uh, Ju uh, Young Lee, a sociology professor at the University of Toronto, has been speaking to us on the topic of serial killers and specifically Bruce MacArthur. Thank you so much again for your time this afternoon. Thank you for having me.
The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad.